Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, and today's guest is Dr. Liz O'Riordan. She is a breast surgeon with recurrent breast cancer. She's also an award-winning author. She's the author of the awesome book, The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer. And she's also a broadcaster and speaker and triathlete and a wife to an awesome surgeon. Um, it was quite a roller coaster of a podcast for me and I'm sure you will find it really really moving and inspiring and positive uh, so buckle in uh, put on your seat belts and enjoy Liz, how are you? Hi, I'm great, thank you. Now you've been traveling all over the place. I know that um, you do talks around the country. Yeah. And um, talking is a great thing. I think. Have, have you have you always been a talkative person? No, not at all. I was really quite introverted and liked to talk to books rather than talk to other people. And it was only when I started blogging about cancer and someone asked me to come and share my story, I realized that I really enjoy it. It's a bit like medicine in a way, that acting side of medicine where you put on a show for a ward round and it's a way of, I guess, moving an audience when you can make a room full of people laugh and then cry and make them think. It's such a powerful thing to do. Sorry, I'll say that again. My doorbell's just gone. Did you no, hear no, that, that No, that's okay. That's okay. That's absolutely okay. fine. And, okay. and, and um, I've never been a talkative type either. I mean, I'm talkative at home, yeah, but not in front of crowds that I don't know. But what you just said is quite powerful. You can actually move not just one person, but people. Yeah. And, it, and it's to have a room full of a thousand people. And I, I've got used to it. When I finish telling my story, it's a room full of stunned silence. And then you look and they're all standing up, but they're all wiping their eyes. Men are wiping their eyes. And it's really weird because to me, it's just my story. You don't realize the effect it can have on other people. It's a bit like a drug. It can be addictive in a way. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and we don't realize how powerful even our most simplest of stories are to other yeah. people. You know, particularly people that are going through it as well and yet don't have the courage to talk about it. Or the sounding board. I'm lucky that because I'm a doctor and a patient, healthcare professionals will listen to me. Other patients don't get that platform. They're just a patient. People won't go. They'll miss that bit of the conference. So I'm very lucky I can represent the patient body when I speak. And in terms of the doctors, I mean, um, are they, do they connect with you more or do the patients connect with you more when you're, to, when you're talking about your story? I think I've spoken mainly to healthcare professionals, to businesses, to pharma, to schools. I've not spoken to many patient bodies. And I think patients are desperate to share their own stories. And in a room full of patients, everyone, naturally, you want to talk about, well, I had this, I had that, I had that. And every patient journey is completely different. So I think you connect more with doctors because we never hear patient stories. And even if it just makes them think about changing one part of their practice, Whereas patients, it's more, oh, I had that. What did you find? How did you do? Have you tried this? It's a very different dynamic in the room. You're, you're trying to help them or reach them in different ways. 
Uh, what do you find easier? Is it the doctors or, or the nurses or other healthcare professionals? Or does it make any difference? It doesn't make any difference to me. I change my story every time I talk so I know I'm giving them what they need rather than I talk about X and I give the same talk wherever I go. That's boring. That's no use to an audience. So I do try and change it to help whoever I'm speaking to. But that takes time and effort. I mean, it's very challenging. It is. It takes about 10 hours to put together a talk and rehearse it and be able to give it as a keynote. And you don't get paid for that. You do it in your own time. Yeah, I mean, it's very challenging. And, you know, I guess that's a stimulation, which, you know, which is why we we became surgeons in the first place, because it sort of challenges us, it stimulates us. And it puts us in that kind of stressful situation, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. And going back, you know, what was the kind of trigger that sort of made you, I mean, you know, you mentioned your story and, you know, the experience of cancer. Um, But what was it that made you go from silence to, no, I've got to do this now? So I started writing a blog, my husband suggested actually, back in 2015 when I was diagnosed, just to help me work out what I was feeling, because I was in denial. How could I possibly have breast cancer? I'm a breast surgeon. I can't be having chemo. It's not real. And my family lived far away. And by me writing what I was going through, it was a way of keeping them up to date. And I realized I had a writing voice that people responded to all over the world, which blew me away because I was just writing it for me. I didn't think anyone would read it. And then um, Ross Fisher, who's a pediatric surgeon, got in touch saying that TEDx Stuttgart were looking for people, women, to come and do a TED talk. Would I be interested? I thought, oh my God, that's crazy. What is a TED Talk? And I said yes, and he mentored me. And through him, I learned how to give a presentation. He believes, and I'm with him, that the number of words on any slide should be zero. That you put the computer away, you work out where you are, where you want the audience to get to, and PowerPoint is only to highlight your story. And then you practice it standing up so you know it inside out. And that's what you do for TED. I had three months of mentoring. And it's, I'd love people at conferences to start doing that. I don't care about a paper with all these busy slides and stats and pictures of genetics you don't understand. I won't remember that in the clinic. You give me a story of a patient who your research may help, and then I'll get the link. And it's a way of telling your scientific story and making people remember. And when you don't have a load of texts behind you, they have to listen to you. They're not on their phones tweeting because there's nothing to look and suddenly everyone in the room is paying attention. And I realized, although it was hard work in the beginning, it then became very, not easy for me, but natural for me. And it was just been word of mouth. We heard you talk, could you come here? Could you come here? And suddenly I've got 40 talks a year lined up and it's like, oh, when am I going on holiday? Uh, I mean, how do you get over the fear of people looking at you? and sort of people's attention on you. Um, um, I find that quite difficult when I'm talking. Initially, I was worried. I looked quite different. I didn't have much hair. And it was quite hard the first couple I did when I had my local regional recurrence and I'm flat on one side. I can't wear a prosthesis. And you think, are people looking at you? What do you wear? What image are you projecting? But I've now got a couple of outfits that I know look good on stage. And I just go out and have fun. Um, I want them to look at me. I want them to listen to me. I want them to be shocked and to feel and to think, wow, I can do something different. And it's a bit like trying to recreate what I had in the operating room because I retired last February. And it's just that sense of, I guess, leading a team, but in a different way. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and um, what's been most challenging since since you've retired? You know, because you're a busy, busy surgeon doing lots of surgery, you know, really, really active within the team, lots of research, lots of auditing and everything. You were really, really active in uh, in your medical career. I'd been a consultant for a just over two years when I was diagnosed and I had nine months of treatment, chemo, radiotherapy, surgery. I had another six months off to get my energy back. I couldn't work during chemo because I had my own cancer. I could, there's no way I could see patients when I was being treated for breast cancer myself. And then I spent six months shadowing a local breast unit so they could see if I was safe enough to go back. Could I not be a patient in the room with other patients? And then I was back for, oh gosh, only about six months or so when I got a local recurrence again and I was off. So I, I almost had a two year hiatus of being ill. And in a way it was a relief to be forced to retire from a psychological point of view. Having had a local regional recurrence, knowing my risk of a proper recurrence in METS was much higher, I wasn't ready to put that behind me and move on and deal with patients. And when you see women with METS in your MDT, it was just too raw to think that could be me. And I didn't think I could safely or ethically be a doctor and not a patient. Plus, by that time, my book had come out. People would know who I was. You can't have patients asking to see me because I'd understand that wasn't fair on me. But the real reason I had to retire was um, a double dose of radiotherapy and surgery to my left arm and scarring meant I can't actually move it properly. So I couldn't do a lot of the auxiliary stuff. And I thought I'd be fine about it. And then I was actually grieving for the one thing I've wanted to do since I was about eight. So you spend 20 years training, doing the degrees, the research, and you're lost. Because we define us, well, I define myself as a surgeon. When you meet people, oh, I'm Liz, I'm a breast surgeon. I think, oh, I'm not that anymore. How do I fill that gap? And my problem was, because I'm not being paid, my pension's tiny, I said yes to everything because I worried I'd have nothing to do. And then I said yes to too much. And I could work 10 days a week at the moment. It's crazy. So how, how did you cope with that? I mean, how did you cope with that psychological uh, sort of forced change within you of, of sort of changing your label and changing your, your sort I, of, uh, um, forced self from yourself, if that makes sense? Yeah, it was really hard. I think there was an element of depression and feeling lost and who am I and what do I do? And can I still call myself a doctor if I'm not practicing? And there was also a fear that my life would be forever about cancer because I developed this niche on the side by writing the book, The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer, by talking about it during my illness. I was known as the breast surgeon with breast cancer. And am I forever going to spend the rest of my life talking about cancer? When do I just become Liz? And I'm not ready to drop being involved with cancer, but I am aware that there is more to life. I don't have it anymore. How do you move on? And, but on the other side, it was freeing because I certainly had time to do all those hobbies that I'd stopped at medical school. I got time to actually get in the garden. I got time to exercise a bit more and start sewing and just realize I was a very boring person. <laughs> it was eat, sleep, work, research, projects, Twitter. I didn't have time for hobbies because I was so busy being a surgeon and it nice is the wrong word, but to get that wake up call at an age where I'm fit enough to do something about it. It's not all about work. And when it's taken away from you, you realize there is so much more to life 
but current medical training doesn't tell you that you can't take a year off to go sailing around the world you have to do this you have to do that and it's bollocks we are human beings who need to feel fulfilled in every aspect of our lives and surgery medicine does not tell you to do that what would you advise people who are sort of going through that kind of phase of transition where deep down they know it they got to do something different you know they've just got to i think like like walk away from this madness so you decide you want to be a surgeon at a relatively young age kind of early 20s when you get the job and you change as you go through life and that may be you change as a person through relationships through stress at work or you realize it's not for you you become a different person and i think it's okay to, to say I'm not enjoying this anymore. I am a different person and I do not want to be a surgeon. I do not want the surgical life. Um, and I want to take some time out. And I, I thought about quitting halfway through my senior surgical training. The, I moved from Cardiff to East Anglia. I didn't have any friends. Um, I was renting. I had no life. I thought I'd rather work in M&S and stack shelves than be bullied and criticized. I hated it. And then my husband asked me out and I suddenly had a social life and that was a way of coping. And I went into breast surgery because there was no on call. So at least I might have a chance of having a life outside of surgery. I think every woman being a surgeon needs, as well as a partner, they need a wife as well. You need someone to look after you whilst you're looking after other people. And so again, someone said, you can't be a perfect wife, mother and surgeon. Something has to compromise. And it's that battle within yourself, but it's, you're not letting anyone down. And it's all right if your ladder stops really low and you don't want to be the next research lead clinical director. It's okay just to be an okay surgeon that's a great communicator with patients and have a life outside. We need to change the rules. We need to say it's okay to take time off and to follow your heart because there was, a, a, did you see the article saying, about talking to a load of retired surgeons who said they wish they'd done things differently? It's been out recently, it's been on Twitter how they wish they'd done more sailing or done more cycling or spent more time with their family. You don't get that time back. And I thought, I don't want my gravestone to say she was an amazing surgeon who always came in on a Sunday night and looked at emails at three in the morning. No one gives a shit about that. I want them to say I was a, a wife or a friend or a, that's what I want to be remembered for, for me, not my job. Now, some people are completely surgically focused and that's fine, but you don't have to be surgically focused. You can have a life and it's okay to say, this isn't for me. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely makes sense. I mean, you know, I, I um, my, my dream job was to do charity work in a war zone and I did that. And, you know, yeah. that was it for me when wow. I got there. And, but then I knew that there was something missing and it wasn't filling my void. Yeah. So I and what take, was missing? Was it surgical wise or was it external? No, it was me. It was me. You. Yeah. It, it wasn't filling me as a human being. Yeah. You know, it wasn't filling my soul or my spirit or, you know, uh, but I thought this was, would, would fulfill me spiritually. Yeah. You know, psychologically it was okay. Um, but spiritually it wasn't. And I realized that actually, um, yeah, I'm a, I'm not an exceptional surgeon and, and I never wanted to be. Yeah. You know, I never wanted to be an exceptional surgeon, but I just wanted more fun, basically. <laughs> yeah, and, and often surgery, the time, I didn't realize how hard it would be to be a consultant surgeon. Yeah. 
I was desperate to get there. Let me do what I want. Let me use my own sutures and use my own scars and make the decisions. And then when the responsibility is on you, I had a morning operating list every week. So a tiny fraction of my week was actually operating. And I didn't realize how hard it was to tell women they had cancer. We have double maths on a Friday. Morning was chemo results. You need chemo, post-op results, it spread. Afternoon was new biopsy results. And I could break 10 women every Friday, week on week on week. And you absorb all that negative emotion. We don't get counseling. It's part of the job. And that was starting to destroy my soul. I'm good at doing it, but I meant to go home on a Friday and be the life and soul of the party. And I was just, Jesus. And you either, you can't take every case personally. So it starts to become normal. Oh, it's just cancer. But for a patient, I now know it's not. And I just think we as a profession need to be aware that we deal with some really heavy shit. I don't think I smiled for like 10 years. I think I was just constantly miserable. (laughs) You've got the stress of trying to, you know, writing a business case to get a new project or working with colleagues who you may not choose to work with or managers changing. And then you get a complaint letter. And it's just, you don't realize that being a surgeon is not all about operating. And you're lucky if you get a nice team to work with. I was very nice. So I used to get often the odds and ends because I wouldn't shout at them. So you don't get a team who know what you like all the time. And suddenly that enjoyment can be sucked out of you. And you think, this is not what it was hooked up to be. When I get three hours of operating in a week and that's it, and I'm a surgeon. And you realize that, I think a lot of people, someone said to me, the surgery becomes boring because you'll do the same three operations and you'll say the same thing in clinic for the next 25 years. You either get your rocks off on research, educational management, or it's your life outside because the job is boring. And they were right, I think. And, you know, uh, people outside the profession don't realize, you know, that, no. you know, that, that, that um, uh, reflection. Um, I, I mean, even my time working in the walls, and that was boring as well. <laughs> because you get the usual stuff and you do the usual operations and so on. And it just yeah. wasn't fulfilling. It just didn't feel no. Much. At all. So what did, you, what did you do to fill that gap? I went into the psychological sphere, you know, the spiritual fear, uh, sphere. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I found psychotherapy really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. I found the psyche really interesting, you know, delving into yeah. the metaf- metaphysical aspect. And also just talking about it, uh, you know, or, or, or listening to people in that sphere. I found that really, really fascinating. That really stimulated me. So it was, yeah. rather than my hands were talking, my my thoughts were talking yeah if that makes sense no it does and and uh, going back to your point um about being diagnosed with cancer what were your colleagues like were they you know particularly the surgeons of them what were they like so i was treated i didn't i i didn't think i had cancer i thought it was another cyst and i went to a local hospital because i didn't want my own mdt talking about me and so my own colleagues i work with are obviously distraught how can this happen? But I was treated in a hospital where I'd worked as a junior edge and a senior edge, where my husband was a consultant surgeon there and my breast surgeon had been a trainer. She was a mentor. She was a friend. None of us were expecting this to be cancer. It was a sneaky bugger. And I knew it was cancer when I saw the ultrasound. So I got to tell my husband, if the breast nurse comes to get us, it's cancer. I know. No one believed me. Going into that room and seeing them cry and they're treating a friend and a colleague and 
that was really, really hard. And I think it was harder for them than it was for me because I was in denial. It wasn't happening. It can't be happening, going through the motions. But to see your colleagues crying and people you've worked with for three or four years wheeling you down the corridor into theatre. And it's really hard when you're dealing with colleagues. The looks of natural pity and, oh, my God, and is this real? And what to say when they see you? It's, it's really, really hard. And my, my surgeon said, I don't know whether I can treat you. Who do you want to see? And that's hard because when you know by name or reputation everybody in your field and you've got the pick. Did you hear that? Oh, that's okay. No, so again, so... My yeah, yeah, surgeon, I mean, I did hear you. Yeah, yeah, I did hear yeah, you. No, it's the, door, it's the doorbell going. As well yeah, as yeah, again. yeah, you're, you're surgeon, right. You're a popular surgeon, lady. Yeah. <laughs> my surgeon said, um, who do you want to treat you? Because I'm not sure I can because I was a friend. And when you know everybody in your field, who do you pick? Do you go for the best slides at a conference or do you go because they work at a private or do you work, go for a big teaching center? Do you go for location? It's really, really hard. And we all know there are people you'd never go to in a million years for whatever reason, but patients don't have that inside information. Now I stuck with her, but she had to stop being my friend because I can't treat you if, you're a friend and I work with your husband. I see him every day if it goes wrong. And that was hard to lose someone during that time. I think it's really hard to treat colleagues and we don't get advised about it at all. But do you think that's a good thing? I mean, is, isn't it good for the surgeon to be your friend at the same time? I, I think there's being, being your, a friend is being a friendly doctor to you, but not yeah. someone you can sit with coffee and have a chat. We were friends socially right. and we had to stop being friends outside of work. So she could just treat me as another patient. It would be mm. like you operating on your wife or your mother or your niece. You can't do it. You shouldn't do it. Mm. Mm. Because the stakes are high. The stakes are different. I think you think differently going into that room because you know them. Mm. What if this happens? Oh, my goodness. Where if it's another patient, you can just be cold is the wrong word, but it's just another day at the office. And, and as a breast surgeon, mm. so many of your colleagues will have breast cancer because... The NHS is a mainly female workforce. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of the male surgeons, I mean, you said that some of them did shed a tear, some of them. Yeah, so I mean, I, in the hospital where I worked, there were two consultants, one man and one woman, both lovely, both devastated. It's happened mm. to a friend, like you would be if anyone you were close to got breast cancer and is having chemo. Um, when, did you, when, 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 when did you become devastated by this because it sounds as though you were kind of you know you had a kind of uh, curtain over your over your humanness so, I, I i remember this i i had my mammogram was normal and they did the ultrasound and i turned to look at the screen because i do ultrasounds myself and i saw a cancer i didn't need to wait for the biopsy i knew and my head kind of then went into self-defense mode and i got to ring my parents and say I'll be telling you I have cancer in a week. And don't be silly. No, I will. And it was then right. Okay. And I was going through the motions and everyone else was crying. My husband was crying. I was like, it's fine. We'll get through this. Um, but chemo shrank my tumor completely. I still had a mastectomy because I'm small breasted. And I remember going to get the results of my surgery and it was the 23rd of December. And I remember being in that waiting room of couples desperately squeezing each other's hands, looking at the floor, knowing they were going to get bad news. And I was happy because I knew my tumor had shrunk. 
and I dressed up and I remember thinking, thank God I never have to go through this again. And I went into that room and my surgeon had to say, actually there were 13 centimeters of cancer left in my breast. It was lobular and it had spread to my lymph nodes during chemo. And that floored me because I then knew the risk of recurrence. The prognosis was much worse. I was not expecting that. And then I was angry and shouting and screaming. And I just thought, fuck, how and why? And this isn't on. Partly because I knew more knowledge than my husband and my parents. I knew what that meant. And it's not my job to tell them, but then who do I talk to? And then when I had my local regional recurrence, I'd been treating it as a nodule of scar tissue for a couple of years with physio and we weren't expecting anything. I was going to have implant surgery to try and help with pain and they biopsied it. And I went in and I knew that look on her face and it's like, shit, it's come back after a couple of years. This is not good. But I think my, my experience of bad news is tainted because of my knowledge as a breast surgeon. And it's more, I know exactly what this means and what do I deal with that internal inside knowledge that my friends and family don't have. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, you, it's like you were in I a disadvantaged, a disadvantaged yeah. position. When I'm explaining it to my parents, I'm explaining it like I'm talking to them as a patient. It's like, why aren't you getting angry or upset? Well, I can't. I'm, I'm explaining to you because I can, instead of, holy fuck, my cancer's come back. This is, I'm going in a heap. You, I just have this weird inside knowledge, and that's been really hard for me to try and compartmentalize. And Has that got go. easier for you, though, over, over no. time? Really? I think, I'm, I think generally most doctors are very bad patients. I wanted to tell my surgeon what stitches to use and where to put the scar. And it was like, no, you have to, you have to give up control and let me look after you because you haven't been a patient before. And I was trying to deal with side effects. You know, chemo is meant to be bad. You don't know how bad. I was self-medicating. Why didn't you call us for help? Well, I didn't think I should because I'm a doctor and I thought I should know how to deal with this. And it was hard to learn to just be a patient. And with the internet out there, anybody can look at the answer to anything. And I think it helps patients, but it can hinder doctors. So it hasn't got easier. No, um, the fear of recurrence and the fear of dying gets fades with time. I think I'm coming up to 18 months all clear again after treatment. And you, I don't work up every day taking tablets think is today the day it comes back. That does fade with time. Every time you get a scan, you're through the roof again thinking, oh my God. Um, but when someone you know dies on social media or a friend dies, you're back there again. There's the guilt that they've died and you haven't. You almost want to have metastatic cancer so you have it and not them. It makes no sense at all. None of it's rational. And you just, it's like an emotional roller coaster. That's really difficult. I think the hardest part for me was when my surgeon said, goodbye at one year, see you in five years. And you're suddenly left. Is this a cough or a cough? Do I need to worry about this? How do I cope with the side effects? Who's looking after me? Because when you have chemo, you're so hospitalized. And it's like, bye, off you go. And that's really scary because everyone wants you to get on with your life. And you look so well. I don't look like I've had cancer twice. They don't see the scars, the chronic pain, the mental problems. You put on the mask, you smile. And that's hard. And as a surgeon, I now get when patients come to see you, and they've waited an hour and they've got a list of questions, but you don't want to bother the doctor because you know they're busy and you put on the mask and you say, everything's fine. And then 
your husband asked, why didn't you tell them about the pain? Oh, I didn't want to bother them. And I wonder whether clinics, they're not for me as a doctor to tell patients things. They're there for the patient to tell me what's troubling, troubling them. And I always used to say at the very end of the consultation, write any questions. As you're closing the screen, arms folded, I'm busy. And I think it's the first thing we should say. Before I do my bit, what is on your mind? What can I do for you today? Flip it on its head. Give them a chance to say, actually, I'm really, really struggling with this before you launch into routine. And then it's really hard for a patient to interrupt that flow. You just, okay, not today. It's really difficult. It, re it really is. And there's just no time now. There's just but no I, time. I I know there's no time, but all too often you do your bit and as the, just as the patient is leaving and the hand's on the door, by the way, can I just tell you, and you're there. And I think if we made it the first thing we did, you would help them, you direct the consultation, you may tell them what they need rather than what you think they need, especially in the follow-ups. It's difficult when you're giving someone a diagnosis, but don't take anything in, they can't think that's different. But when you're seeing them afterwards, start by asking them what, what's wrong, what, what, how you can help them. Because this is for them. Yeah, we are there for them. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we're there for them. And um, I mean, that, that, that's also very traumatic for the, for the surgeon themselves. Yep. You know, having, it really is. You know, have, having to hear all of these um, difficult emotions on a, on a continuous basis. But you might, they might not all be difficult. I think most people are happy and most people are pleased. And the Fair complainers enough. don't complain. But I just think it's, are you, are you having trouble with a side effect like sex and I can easily fix that for you? Or is it a little thing about the scar and I can say, actually, that's normal, don't worry. I think most of the time it's relatively inconsequential to the surgeon, but it's huge to the patient. But if you don't hear those things, you can't change your practice. You can think, well, okay, if everyone is coming back and saying that, I can now tell people about it when I can send them in the future. Yeah, yeah. You don't um, know what you don't know. And in terms of you coping now, you know, what yeah. are you doing to sort of to cope with getting on with your life, so to speak? It's, I've had to learn to say no to people. I think because of my profile, I get emails, DMs, requests almost 20 times a day asking for either medical information or advice or could you do this? And it could eat into my life. And it got to the stage where I was so busy helping other people I wasn't helping myself. I'm launching a charity called Cancer Fit to try and get cancer patients exercising, but I didn't have time to exercise myself because I was so busy helping other people. And I've had to almost block off days where I, I do nothing, I just do stuff for me and look after myself. Because as a doctor, I just want to help people. And it feels nice when you can help people. You can really make a difference. When someone sends me an email saying, I read your blog about sex and I cried because I know I'm not alone and I know there's help out there. You just want to reach out. And I tend to have crazy months where I do too much. I'm traveling all over the country and then I fall in the heat. So I'm trying to look after myself because my cancer might come back and I want to make sure that I'm fit enough and strong enough to deal with it when it happens. But it's hard. You wake up every day, you take 10 tablets, you think, I don't have a normal life. Um, Image has been hard for me. I don't look below the neck in the mirror. I don't look at my scars. I kind of dissociate myself from them. It's hard to feel 
attractive as a woman when you've lost your hair, you've lost your breast, you've lost your ovaries, you've lost your libido. That's hard, the effect that cancer can have on relationships. And I didn't get any of that as a doctor. And I think it's slowly rebuilding myself and accepting I am a different person, but I have to learn to like this person and move on. It's not easy. It's not easy at all. And, 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 and also other people's reactions are, are sort of difficult to deal with, you know, the way that they react to you and the way that they interact with you as well. And I think the problem with social media is we all like to portray our best selves. And I've been as guilty of that as anyone. Look at me, I'm amazing. Tell me I'm great for doing this. That's half the time why we post stuff. But if you don't show the dark side, people think you're superhuman and they can't aspire to be like you. They might resent you. Oh my God, she's always doing this and I'm struggling to walk. And it's realizing that I have to show the darker moments, the sides where I'm struggling and say, this is normal. Yeah, I mean, no, life is a struggle. I mean, you know. I life mean, is a yeah. <laughs> we don't We don't show that. When do people talk about their complications on social media as a surgeon? When do you say, God, I had a really bad case. How do you guys deal with that? When are we actually open and honest and talk to each other? When do we as surgeons go to conference and say, I'm going to show you all the really bad cases. These are my mistakes. One of the best lectures I went to was at um, a training day for breast surgeons and senior consultants came and showed us their cock-ups so you could learn they were open they were honest i did this it didn't work this is why and that was to a room full of trainees but i love in conferences to say we all make mistakes how do you get out of this what do you do it happens to everybody instead of i'm amazing i think that would be a really interesting conference to talk about the mistakes in privacy but in an open and honest place yeah it happened to me what do you do how do you move on? How do you deal with the guilt? We don't support each other as a profession. You're absolutely right. And, and um, I think, you know, this sort of honesty and openness and, and, and just showing the humanism um, of us and the, uh, you know, but that goes against the general kind of image of the, uh, of the perfect surgeon and the perfect professional, doesn't it? But it doesn't exist. You set out to do no harm, but mistakes happen. Either you did the wrong thing or the patient was the wrong person and you get vilified in the press. Oh my God, somebody died. Well, do you know the pressures we are under? Do you know what we do in the operating room? The decisions you make, the things you can't control. People are going to die. It doesn't make us bad people. And I think it's changing that in the media. It's a normal consequence of operating someone will get a problem if you don't get problems there's something wrong with you you know you're not doing enough or you're lying through your teeth and actually saying it is a normal part of medicine we get it wrong don't hate us it's we're humans i mean that's very unlikely to change <laughs> because <laughs> okay. you... the press like battering us but i think maybe we as a press when you get a complaint, you kind of hide it away. Why don't you have a big, you know, talk about it? It's, we're scared. Yeah. We're not meant to admit our mistakes. We're meant to be perfect. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, when I get complaints, I sort of go <laughs> feet, feet straight in and, and sort of just get down to the bottom of everything and um, own up, you know, if you've truly made a mistake and see how you can do something about it. Um, Here's a question. How long does it take when someone sends in a complaint? How long does it take for them to get a response from the trust? Do you know? No. 
it can be years. Wow. Because especially with paper notes, the notes go around every single person involved in that complaint who may take three or four weeks before they have the time to sit and go through them and then a letter's amalgamated and the, the, it may take a good six, nine months for the patient to get a response. Mm. I didn't realise that. And then when I got another complaint, I just thought, I want to talk to the patient. And they were terrified, but I saw them with pals. And actually what they were really bothered about wasn't in the letter, it was something else. And they were terrified of meeting me, but I could listen and say sorry. And they had a response from me before they got the official letter. And all we tend to do is say, I did nothing wrong. I didn't mean to. I've been through the notes. I was fine. No one says, yeah, I'm sorry we fucked up. How can we help? We don't take ownership. We're so busy trying to defend ourselves because you don't mean to do anything wrong. Well, yeah, I mean, it goes against the whole kind of mindset or ethos that, that yeah. you know, that we've created within us. And then We're this so comes, defensive. yeah, and then this comes sort of banging on your door and, you know, the first reaction not is... Not me. Yeah, it can't be me. For some reason, a patient is upset. And if you just went and talked to them with PALS support, if they were happy for that you might get to the bottom of what the problem is and say, well, we will investigate this and you will get a formal letter from the trust telling you what we've done, but A, I'm sorry, and I'm here to listen. I think it would diffuse so many things that it's not done like that. Yeah, coming from a position of listening, I think that's really, really powerful. Because that patient is waiting. I've, I've taken the time and the mental stress to write a letter complaining, which is quite a scary thing to do. And there's nothing and there's nothing and there's nothing. And then you get more angry and angry because you're waiting and then solicitors and lawyers get involved. And I just wonder, you're treating your own hurt because someone's written a letter against you rather than remembering whether I did something wrong or not. There's a patient there who felt like this. Yeah. And that's me seeing it from the other side. Did you make any complaints when you were having treatment? No, I had, no. I had fantastic care but I've spoken to patients who haven't had great care. You tend to get a lot of angry people who voice on social media because then it's like TripAdvisor. If you have an okay time at a, at a restaurant, you don't write in and tell them because it was fine. It's what you expect. It's the angry people you pay attention to and you listen to them. And I just wonder whether we as a profession could do more in realizing that patients are hurt, even if it's not your problem, but that's a whole other story. Doesn't that make you angry though? Sort of listening to all this sort of angry, you know, angry. Yes. <laughs> it does it does i think doctors are trying the hardest and they don't mean to make mistakes but when you've had a problem you are in the middle of it and that's all you see you're blinded by it um and we don't so i think again it's very easy to change your practice based on that one handwritten letter to you and the chief exec and your mp you forget that 95 percent of patients are really happy with what you do and you don't need to change your practice it's a blip yeah and this brings it's, us on to sort of, you know, the jar of joy, because most of our life is actually a, a bunch of joy. It it's is. Like we It's 99.9% .9 is joy. And then the 0.1% is. <laughs> it is. You, you forget. And that's, I love the jar of joy is a great idea. So for those of you who don't know, um, it's how I ended my TED talk. And I, I stole the idea from Kate Granger, um, a lovely doctor who's now sadly died of metastatic sarcoma. Um, who's behind the Hello My Name Is campaign. And I read about gratitude journals and being mindful and thinking of five things every day that made you happy, but life was too short. I just couldn't be bothered. I couldn't be asked. But she had this jar and every time something good happened, she put a note in the jar and it wasn't every day. That was the important thing. You didn't have to do it every day. Months could go by. 
And the first thing was my husband putting on a pair of trousers he hadn't worn for years and finding a fiver in the back pocket. Free money! Or my puppy being allowed on the sofa or just the bird singing. It doesn't matter how big. And when you are having a bad day, you just look and think, good stuff's happening. Yeah. And I've had people doing it in schools and even in junior doctor's offices. I was first in line at Costa to get my coffee. I got a car parking space. That's a good thing. It's just a way of realizing that something good does happen every day if you look for it. Yeah, and it's all around us. You know, it really yeah. is. Sun shining, yeah. birds singing, you know, you, you've got roof over your head, you're warm. It can be really, really simple. Yeah, you know, wearing special spectacles as you do. Yes. <laughs> specs. 3D printed, it's bonkers. Oh, really? Uh, so, yeah, right. they're, they're 3D printed titanium mesh. I mean, are they sort of like your printers or did you get it printed? No, I'm an optician. They, they cost a fortune. I bought them with the first advance of my book. An amazing optician who came in and styled me glasses when I had chemo because I had no hair and my frames didn't suit me. And I had some big, huge black frames like Iris Apple. And I thought, right, now I'm speaking a bit more. I, I want to change. And he pulled them out a lot cupboard and I thought, oh my God, these cost a lot. And my husband had tried them on a month before, so he knew how much they cost, but I love them. They make me smile every day. It's worth it. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, you are a, a, a cyclist uh, enthusiast. Yes, cyclist, triathlete, walking, swimming. It's, it's so important. It's, if you're not telling cancer patients to exercise, you are doing them a disservice. It should be the fourth treatment. There's so much evidence now. And I'm, I practice what I preach. But I do enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, exercise just switches off that that sort of mind chatter and that mind fuck that just yeah. gets you in a in a in a dump. I can't think about cancer when I'm lifting weights or cycling. I'm just Liz. Yeah, and that's really important. Just to remember that I'm not a cancer patient. I'm just I'm just a woman, and let everything go. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, we're 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 coming towards the end of the podcast, and it's been really really fascinating and. Definitely, it's been inspiring and hopefully help um, busy professionals, doctors out there who are going through some difficulty to, to sort of reach out and to be okay to reach out and um, know that there are people out there who are, who are thinking of them, which is really important. Um, if you were to sort of reset your life again, if you were to reset the button, what would you yeah. do differently as our last question today? Ooh, I don't know. I would still go into surgery. I still love that. But I would tell my younger self, don't drop all the hobbies and things you loved along the way. Um, they are important to you. They nurture you. They fill your soul. So I, I stopped. I was a pianist. I used to play the flute. I used to sing. I stopped all of that. I've now started it up again. And it brings me joy singing and making music and i'd say nothing is more important than carrying on doing what you love find the time find the time to make yourself a well-rounded person that's been absolutely awesome liz thank you so much it's been fun thank you for having me wow that was an amazing podcast with liz and i found that really difficult to do um i lost my aunt to breast cancer and a lot of difficult emotions um, and memories uh, came up while doing that 
Um, Liz is very active on Twitter, so it is definitely worth following her on Twitter. She's very active there, and um, she says it all out there, uh, which is really, really important. Uh, thank you for listening to today's um, amazing podcast, and I'll certainly be, uh, you know, listening back and and um, going through the words of wisdom that uh, Liz uh, told us about. Uh, please subscribe, please like, and until next time, um, let's keep our third eyes open. Thank you.